Well, yes, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you on the Lord's Day. Um, I'm sure um, that, uh, like me, you are very thankful for the Lord's Day. This is a good day. As the psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made, and so we can rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, as we... As we, uh, as we begin to open up the scripture uh, today, I want to direct your attention to a very important doctrine, a doctrine which the Apostle Paul um, might call of first importance, that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, so before we begin, I'd like to give you just a brief historical introduction um, on justification by faith. Uh, so we'll look at it historically, and then we'll look at a few points uh, that are really central to understanding justification by faith alone. In the first place, we'll consider Christ alone as the object of all saving faith for justification. Secondly, we'll consider faith alone as the instrument of our justification. And then thirdly, we will look at the fruit of our justification. So just for a few brief moments, let's consider justification historically. And again, as I've already said, this is a doctrine for us that we would say is of first importance. And you are probably familiar with the language that I'm using when I say something like, this is a doctrine that is of first importance. Your mind probably immediately goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right, where the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, I deliver to you that which was of first importance. And one of the things that he mentions in that list of very important things, of very important doctrines, is the doctrine of the resurrection, which in the book of Romans he connects to our justification. And so this is a very important doctrine for us to understand, for us to think about, and for us to apply to our lives properly. And as a doctrine that is of first importance, and of course as this doctrine relates to the gospel, we should never tire as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, of hearing of uh, of the great doctrines of the faith, of hearing of the theological construction of the gospel, because this is the gospel of our salvation. We talk about justification. We're talking about what God, the triune God of all creation, has done for us. And so even as we look at a doctrine like this, we're not just doing this to go through some exercise of obtaining knowledge just to learn more about justification. That's not what this is about. This is so we might better understand how God has brought us near to himself, how he has legally declared us to be righteous in his sight, that we might better give thanks to him and better worship him, that our faith might increase. And so these are the reasons that we want to look at a doctrine like justification today. So again, let me provide a brief historical introduction, and then we'll jump right into a few things. Now, oftentimes when we study theology, it's most helpful to see certain doctrines set in contrast with other doctrines or with false doctrine. Oftentimes it helps to elucidate or make more clear the doctrine that we're studying. And that's what I want to do in this historical introduction. When we talk about justification by faith, um, or what we might call sola fide, right? One of the great reformation, one of the great pillars of the reformation. Uh, we are summarizing the consensus doctrine of the orthodox and reformed as to the means of justification. When we speak about faith, Uh, We speak about it, as our confession does, as the instrument of our justification. It is the means by which 
God justifies us. And again, since justification is at the heart of the gospel, this is a doctrine that we must contend for. This is what, uh, this is what the book of Jude tells us. To speak of the importance of justification, I'll just quote to you Martin Luther. Martin Luther believed that justification was the article of the Christian faith by which the church stands or falls. Brothers and sisters, this is no small doctrine that we need to consider today. This is a very important doctrine. And during the time of the Reformation, justification by faith alone developed historically in response to Romanism, in response to the Roman Catholic Church. Let me speak to you about what Rome believed, and in many ways what they still believe, um, in a post-Council of Trent era. Um, Rome believed that one, and still believes, that one is infused with righteousness and a habit of grace in the act of water baptism, such that baptism becomes the instrument of the beginning process of justification. Do you, do you see the distinction already about the instrumentality of justification in Rome's view? We're already beginning to see some of these differences. And um, believers are led on in the process of justification through the continual administration of the sacraments as one becomes more righteous in hopes of being justified by God. There's no assurity, right? There's no certainty there that one will actually be justified. There is only, there's only the, 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 the hope that's set before them, that they will one day be justified in Christ through this infused righteousness and this habit of grace in the act of water baptism. Thus, the sinner is made righteous through a process of faith and works, not faith alone. And again, we need to see the distinction in our own view. Rome doesn't deny justification by faith. That's not what they deny. But they do deny that justification is by faith alone. And that's the important distinction that we need to see. For the Romanist, in terms of the endurance of justification, in terms of what justification means in the Christian life, justification can be lost through mortal sin and only restored through penance. That is, the confession or confession to the priest and absolution from the priest according to works of satisfaction. And so this is not just a justification that is, that is earned through a process of faith and works, but it's also a type of justification that can be lost. And so it doesn't give you much in the way of, of security. For the Romanist, or excuse me, in, uh, in most cases, final justification only comes after purgatory. It's only confirmed after purgatory when one is made perfectly righteous leaving the Romanist with no assurance, no doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And so again, we can see some of the contrast. We can see some of the distinctions between Rome's view and our view of justification by faith alone. Rome's doctrine of justification was essentially codified at the Council of Trent um, in Italy from 1545 to 1563. And again, in many ways, their doctrine of justification has never really changed. It's never really been abrogated. The Council of Trent produced a counter-reformation doc- uh, document which included canons and a catechism 
which again today remain as the authoritative doctrinal statement of the Romanist church. The canons include a lengthy statement on justification, the sacraments, and purgatory. And so these canons and their catechism outline much of their doctrine. And I want to read to you a couple of sections um, from Canon 9 and Canon 12 um, of the Romanist Church. And listen to what, listen to what uh, their catechism and their canons say. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean or in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required as, co- as to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. You probably know what that word anathema means. It means let him be accursed. Let him be excommunicated. And we can draw out a definition right from the text of Scripture in in a place like Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. So what is that statement saying? If anyone saith that by faith alone right, is the way that we are justified, let him be accursed, let him be made anathema. Let me read to you another statement from the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, canon number 12. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. Again, they are wholeheartedly pushing back against the reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone. They are saying that we are anathema because we hold to justification by faith alone, sola fide. And so we, again, we are beginning to understand um, some of the distinctions between our doctrine of justification by faith alone and Rome's doctrine of justification. And, and this will help us as we begin to study positively our own doctrine as it's laid out in our confession. And so Rome's view of justification looks inward at man's own righteousness instead of looking outward at Christ's righteousness. And we'll look at this in just a few moments when we consider what is the object of faith Do we look inward to self or do we look outward to Christ in faith? From Rome's view, one is to look inward. Look inward to self and to one's own righteousness. And so justification by faith alone is rejected outright by the Council of Trent and by extension the Romanist Church. Now, as we begin to transition, the Scripture and our confession are thus rejected outright. And so we need to consider what the Scripture says and what our confession says about this issue if we are to understand positively our own doctrine of justification. As Calvin contends, justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. And we must say yes and amen to Calvin's statement there. And so again, let's consider three points today. Christ alone as the object of saving faith for justification faith alone as the instrument of our justification and the fruit of our justification. But before we do that, let me encourage you to turn in your confession of faith, if you have it with you, to chapter 11. If you have a confession of faith, chapter 11. 
We'll look at paragraphs 1 and 2. Then we'll jump right into these main points and consider the Scripture. Listen to what our confession says in summarizing and summarizing Holy Scripture for us, beginning in paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness in them, you notice that language of infusing that we just looked at a moment ago, but by pardoning their sins and by accompanying and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone." not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. They, receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And now paragraph 2 to speak more specifically here about faith. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. And so let's consider our first point today. Christ alone is the object of saving faith for justification. I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And under this first point, I want us to notice something very important that the Apostle Paul um, argues in Galatians chapter 2. He argues that we are, in the first place, not saved by our own works. That there's no good works that we can do to satisfy the wrath of God, such that would cause us to be holy in His sight, that would propitiate His wrath. But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes here in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Well, the Apostle Paul's argument here is pretty straightforward. Just a a couple of things here that we need to notice that the Apostle says. He says that no person is justified by the works of the law. Of the law. We cannot do enough good works, again, to satisfy God's wrath. Of course, in in the view of of the book of Galatians is, is the controversy surrounding circumcision. And so Paul most certainly has this in mind. Circumcision will not justify the Jew. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I don't really have uh, an issue myself with um, being justified by circumcision. That's not really on my mind. But Maybe, maybe this hits a little bit closer to home for you. Going to church every week will not justify you. Giving to the poor will not justify you. Those are not bad things. In many ways, those are, those are good things. 
Not forsaking the assembling of the believer is a good thing. God commands us to be here on the Lord's day, to take delight in the Sabbath. These are good things for us to do. But these things in and of themselves do not justify us. These works of the law will not help us to be counted righteous in God's sight. As Paul emphatically says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The prophet Isaiah writes that our righteousness before God is considered as filthy rags. Even the best of our works will never ever satisfy the wrath of God. They will never measure up to the one who is holy and blameless without reproach. Paul says emphatically, again in Romans 3.20, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Our confession In chapter 16 and paragraph 5 says, Our best works cannot merit pardon. The distance between us and God is so great, this chasm that is between us is so great, that even in an infinite amount of lifetimes, we could never atone for our own sins, past, present, and future. George Whitfield says this, What? Get to heaven on your own strength Why you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. And he's exactly right. It is vanity to try to satisfy God in this respect. It is vanity to assume or to think that we can obey all of God's law and satisfy his wrath. And so where do we turn? If we cannot turn to ourselves, we must look to someone else. We must look to some other place And so we turn to Christ. We turn to Christ. God demands a perfect righteousness. He requires a perfect obedience for the granting of eternal life. This is his standard. And this is not something that we can accomplish. And so we rely upon the works of Christ. We believe in justification by works. And we we too say that emphatically, but not our works, the work of Christ. Christ's active and his passive obedience is the whole and sole ground of our righteousness. And when we speak about Christ's active obedience, we mean this. Christ's active obedience is his positive obedience to the law of God. Doing all that God commanded in his holy word. Christ never disobeyed God's law either in his external actions or in the internal thoughts and inclinations of his own, of his own heart. He was obedient at every point. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. And I want you to see how the Apostle Paul here helps us to understand Christ's active obedience. For as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners, so also... By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The first Adam failed, and the second Adam succeeded. The first Adam was disobedient. The second Adam was obedient at every point. And Christ's obedience unto righteousness satisfies God's wrath as the very ground of our justification. This is why we cannot look to ourselves, because we are just like Adam, and that we break God's law at every point. But we must look outward. We must look to Christ as the object of our salvation. 
But we also need to consider Christ's passive obedience. We've seen Christ's active obedience, but what about Christ's passive obedience? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And when we speak about Christ's passive obedience, we're speaking about His reception of suffering God's wrath in the place of sinners. As John 10, 17 and 18 tell us, Christ voluntarily gave himself on the cross to suffer under the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, that is for the sake of his people, for those whom God had given to the Son in that eternal covenant of redemption, He made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's passive obedience is such that he was made to be sin for us. We oftentimes think about the the various accounts in the gospel in which Christ is said to be forsaken of the Father. But it's important for us to understand and to think about what Christ actually did for us in his passive obedience. That he actually bore our sin on the cross of Calvary. He did that for us. He stands in our place. We are actually the ones who deserve to be on that cross and to suffer God's wrath and his judgment. But Christ has done that for all those who believe in him. He was made sin for us. Though he knew no sin... Yet he became sin. He became a curse for us. Again, to quote the prophet Isaiah, he was numbered among the transgressors for our sake. This is what Christ has done for us as his people. And this is all so that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. That his righteousness might be imputed or credited to our account. Though we did nothing to earn it, we receive it by faith. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Galatians 3.13. And again, here we see what Christ has done for us as his people. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Christ endured the sanctions of the law. He endured the sanctions of the covenant for our sake by becoming a curse for us. He suffered the penalty of death that was due to all those who believe in him. And Christ did this so that, so that we might be redeemed. He alone then is the object of saving faith. And so we rely on Christ's obedience and the imputation of his righteousness. So look second, uh, I'd like for you to look secondly uh, with me uh, in that faith alone is the instrument of our justification. And we've already seen this in paragraph 2 of chapter 11. We rest upon and receive Christ's righteousness through faith. True faith presupposes a number of things. And... It's a number of things that I'm not going to address today just because we don't have time to do so. But true faith, of course, uh, presupposes things like predestination, doctrines like predestination and effectual calling. 
Uh, we could turn to Romans chapter 8 and look at the Ordo Salutis and see that, that golden chain of redemption that the Apostle Paul presents to us there. But true faith, of course, assumes these things. But we need to define faith. What is faith? When we speak about faith, we're not, we're not speaking about mere fideism, right? Do you know what I mean when I say fideism? Faith is not just faith in, in faith, right? You probably, you probably have seen commercials on, uh, on the television where certain companies will say, you've just got to have faith. And you're asking yourself, what are you talking about? What, what, what do you mean you've just got to have faith? Because the question comes up, faith in what? Faith in who? Well, the scripture says that our faith, um, must be directed to Christ. It must be, it must, faith must have an object. It's not faith in faith, but it's faith in Christ. And faith, we must say, is not an act of God, but it is an operation or an act of man who has been enabled by God to perform that act. Now, we'll, we'll work through some of this. I don't want you to be concerned when I say that, but I'm going to explain this carefully. Um, we're directed now to the Baptist Catechism in question 33. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Even though faith, we might say, is an operation of man, it's not a work that contributes to our salvation. Faith is not a work of righteousness whereby we are justified through our own works. Here we might we might look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we all know the text well. As the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are enabled by God to believe. He calls us, or He predestines us, He calls us, and then He gives us the faith that we need to believe in Him. And so when we speak about faith, we mean that it is the instrumental cause of our salvation. But God Himself is the efficient, final, and absolute cause of our salvation. So when we speak about faith, we don't mean that faith saves us. Faith does not save, but God saves through the instrument of faith. Let me say that again. Faith does not save us, but God saves through the instrument of faith. Faith is the instrument of our justification. It is a gift from God so that we might not boast in our own works. But it is indeed something that we do according to our predestination and effectual calling. And when we come to Christ in faith, we do so with an empty hand. Right? As we've just read from Ephesians chapter 2. We don't come boasting in any of our good works, knowing that we have nothing to bring to Christ. And we oftentimes sing this too. Uh, one of my favorite hymns of the church is a hymn that Toplady wrote called Rock of Ages. You all probably know. You've probably sung it here a number of times. He writes this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, we come naked and helpless. We come with nothing in our hand, but with the empty hand of faith clinging to Christ, looking to Him as the object of our salvation, knowing that if He doesn't wash us, 
in his blood, if he doesn't wash us in the fountain of eternal life, that we are utterly helpless, we are lost and without hope. And so Christ is the object of our salvation, and faith is the instrument that God uses to bring us to that point of justification, to legally declare us righteous in his sight. The first one in Confession of Faith describes faith as, quote, the gift of God wrought in the hearts of the elect by the Spirit of God, whereby they come to see, know, and believe the truth. And there's a couple of things here that I want to pull out for you. When we, when we speak about faith, there are a number of things that we need to note here. I think as our forebears helpfully describe to us, in faith we come to see, we come to assent to the truth. We come to have a knowledge of it, and we come to believe that it is actually true. And so we can speak about these three elements of faith, of knowledge, of assent, and of trust. Again, in the way of knowledge, we must have a knowledge in order to believe in the gospel. We must have a knowledge of the gospel. We must know of God's promises as he has revealed them in Holy Scripture. We wouldn't say that the gospel is revealed in the stars, Certainly, natural theology is important. We need to have a good understanding of how God has revealed himself in creation. And we can certainly say many things about who God is and about what he has done, but the gospel is not revealed in the stars. The gospel is revealed in Holy Scripture. This is where we look. And so one cannot believe if he does not know what God's word says. So we must have an understanding, a knowledge of Holy Scripture and of the gospel in order to have faith. Secondly, one must assent to the truth of the gospel. You must agree with the contents of the gospel. You must acknowledge the gospel as being truthful, that it is actually true and that it applies to you. You see, faith is not just bare assent. right? It's not just acknowledging that something is there, but believing that it's actually true, believing in your heart that the gospel is true and that you are in need of it. And then thirdly, one must trust in Christ alone in order to save from the wrath of God. As Richard Muller explains, trust is that faithful apprehension which appropriates savingly by an act of the will the true knowledge of the promises of God in Christ. We must cast our souls upon Christ We must believe in Him. It is faithful apprehension which appropriates savingly by an act of our will. And our will, of course, has to be changed. We have to be given a new nature in Christ. And so it's only through faith in Christ that we are justified. There is no other way of justification. So what do we say about justification? We've discussed faith, but what about justification? How do we define it? The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a very good definition. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so when we confess justification, in our confession, when we read about justification in the Bible, this is what we mean by justification. It is an act of God's free grace. Again, we did nothing to earn it. Wherein he pardons all our sins. He legally 
declares us to be innocent and he accepts us as righteous in his sight, not for our sakes, but for the sake of Christ, whose righteousness is given to us, whose righteousness is imputed to our account. And of course, the terminology that we find in the Bible about justification is legal terminology, isn't it? It's courtroom vocabulary. Justification is a forensic act. It is a legal act in which we are declared innocent, justified, and we are counted as righteous in God's sight. In an equivalent sense to justification, we might also consider reconciliation. We might also consider the remission of sins, the clearing of accused persons, and the satisfaction of divine judgment. Of course, here, it is appropriate to ask the question, when is a person justified? When is a person justified? Well, even though justification was decreed in eternity, and we would all confess that God's decree is true, and by confessing that God's decree is true, all we're simply saying is that God brings all things to pass after the counsel of his will. There's nothing that happens that God does not decree, that he does not bring to pass according to his holy will, according to his holy counsel. So when does justification take place? When is a person actually and personally justified? Well, again, even though it's decreed in eternity, William Ames says this, Faith precedes justification as the instrumental cause, laying hold of the righteousness of Christ, which justification, which justification being apprehended follows. And so we do affirm that faith must precede justification. Faith must precede justification. Certainly we can say something about how God decreed our justification in eternity and how Christ in some way was raised for our justification. But when does justification actually take place for us? It takes place when we have faith in Christ and God legally declares us righteous in his sight according to Christ's imputed righteousness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. In Romans chapter 1, Paul explains our need for justification. He tells us that all men are fallen, all men suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, because all men are fallen in Adam. And then he expands upon that argument. He gets us to the gospel when he gets to Romans chapter 3. And he speaks about the righteousness of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although, excuse me, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
How does this righteousness that the Apostle Paul speaks of, how does it come to us? Well, he says it right here in our text. It comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And it comes to all who believe, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Greek. It comes to all who believe. It is received by faith. God's wrath is propitiated from us. It is turned aside from us. It is placed upon Christ so that we might not have to endure it, but instead we might receive Christ's righteousness. Thus, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith is the exclusive instrument and operation that God uses to bring us into his kingdom. True faith, saving faith, is faith in Christ and his blood atoning sacrifice for your sins apart from the inclusion of any graces or duties that you and I might perform. Again, no good works that we can boast in. Let's look thirdly, and in the last place, at the fruit of justification. The fruit of justification. And again, here we might consider our confession. Chapter 11 and paragraph 2. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. We believe that faith alone is the instrument of our justification. But true faith is never alone. True faith is never alone. What I mean by this is that true faith can never be dead faith. True faith can never be dead faith. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 earlier, but here we might look once again at Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. As the Apostle Paul goes on, having already made the case for faith, that it comes to us by the grace of God, again, not by our works so that we might not boast, but he says that after we have come to faith in Christ, by the grace of God, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created us, now having had faith in Jesus Christ, to do good works and to walk in these good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should do them, that we should live according to His holy standard and do all that He has commanded us. As our confession says, good works are evidence of a lively faith. This is just evidence of true faith. And God has created us to do this. Now, how is faith increased and strengthened? Well, of course, we know this to be true, that faith is increased and strengthened, especially under the means of grace. This is one of the reasons why we're here on the Lord's Day, to be fed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I mean, even, even in the preaching of the word, we don't believe that preaching is, is the mere word of a man standing up here and preaching. When we, when we come to sit under the ministry of the word, we're seeking to hear from Christ himself. Not that I would pretend to be something that I'm not or that Ryan would pretend to be something that he's not, but we are seeking to hear from Christ. I mean, we could, we could turn to texts like Ephesians 2 and verse 17 where the apostle Paul says, He, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The apostle is writing the epistle to the Ephesian, 
uh, to the Ephesian churches and saying, He, that is Christ, came and preached to you through my ministry. And this is how we are to view preaching. This is how we are to, 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 to view the ministry of the word. That it's not just it's not just preaching by a mere man, but we're seeking to hear from Christ because Christ continues on even in his prophetic office from the right hand of the Father in heaven speaking to his church that we might know and understand his holy will for us, that we might walk in good works as he has called us to do. This is how our faith is increased and strengthened. And there's something special about the means of grace. God has 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 promised special blessing that will be attached to the observance of the means of grace on the Lord's Day. It's good to read your Bible at home. Please read your Bible at home. Please, please pray in your secret room at home. But do not neglect the means of grace. Again, God has given His Holy Word to us. He has called us together as an assembly, as a people of God, to meet together and to observe all of His ordinances. And so we understand that our faith is increased and strengthened under the means of grace. And yet even in justification, one is not made, we are made righteous, we are counted as righteous in God's sight, but we are not made wholly righteous. There is still yet sin that remains in all of us. Again, demonstrating further our need for our faith to be increased for ourselves to be sanctified, even as we are now united to Christ by faith and counted as righteous in God's sight. You need faith to be strengthened. You need to be fed at the table. You need to be edified through corporate singing and prayer. These are good things for our soul. But what about the benefits? What about the benefits of justification? We've said a lot about justification, and I've given you some very technical definitions. I've given you quite a bit of history about the doctrine of justification. But what are the benefits of justification? How does this doctrine encourage you? What difference does it make to you? Well, I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Look with me at verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, no accusation can stand against you. Your account has been paid and your debt has been cleared. Your heavenly standing is secure in Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember, this is, this is after Paul has already made his argument for justification. He's already explained what justification is at this point. In this text, he's just laying out for us some of the benefits of justification. When you are in Jesus Christ, your standing in, in Christ before God is secure. Look with me at Romans 8 and verse 33. Look at Paul's rhetorical question here. Who, he says, shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In Christ, your justification is definitive. It cannot be lost, it cannot be removed, and it cannot be taken away. Those whom God predestines, he also calls. Those whom God calls, he also justifies, justifies, sanctifies, and sanctifies, glorifies. 
This is the promise that we have, that our great triune God, when He justifies us, He will usher us into glory. And this is for our assurance in the faith. And so as we conclude, it's of importance to note that justification is not just an existential doctrine for the academy, but it is, it is a doctrine for the church. It is a doctrine for us. Because when we speak about justification, we're speaking about a doctrine that relates to the gospel of our salvation. This is good news for us. And justification directs us to the person and work of Christ. It helps us to think about what Christ has done for us. How He has been obedient to God's law at every point. It reminds us of our own inability. And it reminds us of our need to be sanctified. And again, as justification assures us that those whom God predestines, He will bring to glory. The teaching of Holy Scripture is that justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, is a doctrine that is for us. It is a doctrine that is a revealed doctrine. It is a doctrine that is for our encouragement and renewal. It is for our the good of our souls even. As we have said, justification is at the heart of the gospel. Christ is the only Savior of sinners. And it is only His righteousness that can satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we do bless You and we thank You for how You have revealed Yourself in Holy Scripture. Oh God, even as we consider a doctrine like justification... We acknowledge and confess in your presence that we have done nothing in your sight that would cause you to be pleased with us. God, we acknowledge and confess in your presence that we are utterly hopeless apart from the work of Christ in us, apart from the accomplishment of redemption by Christ and the application of that redemption to us by your Holy Spirit. Oh God, we thank you for such a great salvation that you have given us. We thank you that you have shown mercy to us as those who were wayward, as those who had fallen short of your glory. And so God, we pray even today as we continue to meet together that you would strengthen and increase our faith, that you would encourage and refresh our souls as we hear from your word and as we continue to worship you. And God, we do pray that you would be pleased and honored with our worship even as we seek to do so in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.